Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. We're kicking off February with a guest whose award-winning filmmaking talents and best-selling author status have assured her place as one of modern horror's most significant voices. As a filmmaker, she's crafted such cinematic frights as the celebrated short Psychotherapy, the scintillating feature Fetish Factory, and even delved into the world of rock with her very personal documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. As an author, she has written an acclaimed biography titled So L.A., A Hollywood Memoir, gave us an array of treats with her short story collection, Sex, Death, and Rock and Roll, and is set to release her new book, Dark Duet, very soon. She's a director, writer, producer, former talk show host, and celebrated journalist. Please welcome Stacey Lynn Wilson. Hello. Hi, Stacey. Welcome to the show. Amazingly, I had time to be here after all those things I do. I know. I mean, (laughs) you seem to have so much going on all the time. And it's just, I was looking across your resume this morning, like you are one of these people who really has in some way, shape or form kind of done it all. And probably there's still more that you want to do. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, I love doing it all. But you know, then again, it's like that thing of where you're too scattered. And if you don't specialize in something, you know, you can maybe lose a chance at at success at something in particular, but I can't seem to limit myself to just one lane for whatever reason. Well, I think that, you know, especially in in today's world, uh, why limit yourself? We we talk frequently about how um, in this town, there's always the notion that like you, you, everyone needs to fit in a box. But I think the best kind of artistry doesn't. I agree. Yeah, I mean, from a creative standpoint, for sure. Right. But you know, when you think, well, what if I just concentrated only on my novels, or what if I was only a filmmaker? How much further ahead might I be? Right. Well, I mean, there's always the what ifs, but like we can't help ourselves. No, so. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> so, uh, of course, I know you from the world of horror and a lot of the things that we talked about in the intro here uh, are horror related. So why don't we just start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why is horror personal to you? Why do you think it appeals to the masses? But why horror? I think that goes back to what we just said about the fact that you can focus on many different aspects of one thing. What I love about horror is that there's horror comedy, there's supernatural horror, there's religious horror, there's queer horror. You know, there's everything for uh, to satisfy the dark soul in horror, and that's what I love about it. I think that's great. And one thing that I think is really interesting about your work is because you have worked both as a creator of horror, but a journalist who has investigated the many facets of horror. So you've seen all of the different tendrils that this community can be. Right. And I'm curious, as as vetted and invested as you are now in the genre, where did that start? I know that you grew up here in Los Angeles in a family that was uh, surrounded and in show business. Right. But what was your trajectory into this world? Um, I think it was just a natural affinity. Uh, my first couple of memories do involve being very young, uh, watching horror films. My dad used to love to let me stay up late and watch Vincent Price movies. <laughs> so <laughs> The Pit and the Pendulum was one of the first you know, movies that really scared me and I loved it. And then, you know, like going, 
a full circle back when I was hosting a, a horror talk show, I got to interview Roger Corman. And it's just such a great thing to be able to look back on that and think, wow, you know, this is where it all started. And I get to, you know, play in the uh, sort of in the field of, of all the things that I loved when I was a kid now as an adult. So do you recall like a definitive moment like you you're staying up you're watching these Vincent Price movies uh, with your dad's approval yeah. <laughs> uh, but do you, did you ever have that that kind of epiphany where you're like oh I don't just love this as a fan this is something I, I want to do. I think uh, probably when I wrote my first uh, horror novel back in the early 2000s mm -hmm. uh, that would have been it and I actually had sent out uh, for reviews on it to some websites that I liked, like horror.com. And they said, oh, yeah, we can review your book, but would you like to write for us? <laughs> and that's, so that's kind of how I fell into entertainment reporting. That was not really my my initial goal. No, I didn't know that because yeah. I, I uh, was just looking sort of the timeline of your career as it looks to be uh, presented. Uh, and, and it seemed like there was a lot of journalism and then a creative shift. But exactly, you actually yeah. started with the creative output and fell into journalism. Right. Yeah. My mother uh, was a novelist and I grew up with, you know, watching her write books all my life. And it was something that I always wanted to do. I loved writing when I was a little girl. I was horse obsessed, actually, <laughs> and would write little horse books and staple them together, you know. And so I always wanted to write books. And that's where it started. But, um, you know, I w it wasn't all that successful. And so I kind of had to make my way through the horror genre as a journalist first and then go back to the creative output. So would you consider your work in the horror journalism almost in a way a crash course education of the genre or uh, more or less I mean you know like you said my parents are both in show business and so I grew up watching all the movies from the 30s 40s 50s 60s um, they were film buffs so I, I feel like I already had a great uh, body of knowledge in film in general which I think is really important for a film journalist right. uh, even if you are a horror journalist you should know about the screwball comedies of the 30s. You should have watched Sunset Boulevard. You should have watched, um, you know, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I think that really informs you as a critic to have a wide variety of knowledge of film in general and I, then narrow it to horror. I agree. And I also think it informs you as a creator. I think this mm -hmm. is something that we don't talk about enough uh, in in the, the genre and certainly not as, as much as I'd like on this show is this idea that just because someone is a fan of horror doesn't mean they don't love other things. Right. And I was recently in Palm Springs over the holidays, and uh, there's a bar down there called Quads. So here's a shout out to you, uh, Palm Springs residents. Quads does a, uh, a night uh, where they do uh, all clips from musicals, like old movie musicals. Mm -hmm. And I was there with a friend, and he'd be like, what? is this from Sweet Charity? He was like, oh, I've not heard of that. This was Shirley MacLaine. You have to watch it. Or what's this? This is XYZ. This is Best Little Horror House in Texas. This is, you know, Chorus Line. And he was like, I'm surprised you know all of this. I thought that you liked horror movies. I'm like, I like movies. Right, exactly. And I think that um, there's a sort of an incestuous issue sometimes with, with modern horror where modern horror only references itself. But some of my favorite horror movies go outside of the genre and pull those elements within. And I think that if you have a wider uh, just point of reference, it's better. 
Exactly. I think uh, Guillermo del Toro said it best. He said, if all you know is dude, that's your point of reference. You know, (laughs) he's talking about, you know, these pop culture, uh, very self-aware, like, you know, journalists who don't go outside and look at art and literature and film um, to inform their opinions. Well, speaking of journalism and speaking of uh, just your life in L.A., I have a few things that I want to cover. But you you talked about growing up with a showbiz family. Mm-hmm. And you wrote about that uh, a bit in the, the memoir that I, I referenced, So L.A. Yeah. And one of the things that I like that you said about this memoir is that you felt it was appropriate because you are the rare native Angelino. <laughs> but also that your experience growing up in Los Angeles was a little different as opposed to how the world perceives what Los Angeles is. So tell me just a little bit about growing up in L.A. and what it's like growing up here as opposed to what this cultural idea of what it is. And how do you feel it's changed in the years that you lived here as well? Well, when I was quite young in the 70s, uh, I lived in the Valley. So not exactly Hollywood, but Hollywood adjacent. And I had ponies in the backyard. You know, like I said, I was a horse crazy girl and my mom loved animals. We even had a pet monkey. You know, we had uh, goats, rabbits. So it was almost like uh, the farm in in Hollywood, more or less, you know. And so I think that really gave me a great um, sort of foundation in life to have that experience as well as being just, you know, moments away from the Sunset Strip. And of course, you know, when I came of age in the 80s, it was the hair bands and, you know, (laughs) hung out with Motley Crue and, you know, the guys from Guns N' Roses and all those bands, uh, Wasp. I don't know if you remember them, but uh, oh my goodness, yes. So, I mean, that was just a really interesting, tumultuous time in pop culture and politics and the world. So I think it was a great time to grow up. Um, As to how it is now, it's really pretty gentrified, I would say. It's homogenized. It's not the same edgy kind of Hollywood that it used to be. Although I still do, I still like LA quite a bit. Uh, So the other thing I wanted to talk about, speaking of the changing face of the world, uh, is when you were talking about the fact that you uh, first really stepped into the world of journalism in 2000. Uh, in the early days of the online sphere of horror journalism, as opposed to where we're at now, and just film journalism and entertainment journalism in general, uh, there has been a massive overhaul of how the whole system Absolutely. Looks. I remember as an online journalist having to fight for interviews or for a spot at the very end of the red carpet. I mean, it was just like online was in the gutter and three blocks away, basically, you know, and now, of course, online is king. So it's changed quite a bit. But then again, um, back then, journalism paid much better than it does now because everyone is a is an armchair critic and everyone has a forum and everyone has an opinion, which is, you know, that's, again, a double edged sword. It's a good thing, but it's bad for, of course, people who wish to make a living as an online journalist or an entertainment reporter within our genre. So let's talk a little bit about that, because you were doing quite a bit of work in that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked for the Sci-Fi Channel, and that was a really great run. You know, I got to be, I was flown all over the world to set visits and red carpets, and uh, it was really quite a wonderful time in online journalism when it caught on, and just for that that brief shining moment, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was pretty good. 
And it's really not the same anymore because, as you said, it's just a changing pace. Uh, But while you were in the world of journalism, like you said, you started because you wrote a novel Mm -hmm. and you in this very interesting way uh, got into the world of journalism. Talk to me a little bit about the shift into filmmaking, because that's, again, a different step. At what point did you decide, okay, well, I'm writing about all these movies, but I want to be making movies? Yeah, I never really endeavored either to be a film director. Really, I'm a writer at heart. Mm -hmm. I'm the person who's in their sweats with no makeup on in front of the computer and completely happy. I don't really like to be thrust into the spotlight or have a whole crew at my command. Although I do enjoy collaboration. There's ups and downs to all of it. But but I actually made a short film called The Key to Annabelle Lee, which is uh, based on Edgar Allan Poe's film, and it stars Ogre from Skinny Puppy, sort of the world of, of rock music and horror colliding once again. Right. And it was just something fun that I enjoyed, and it really, that film uh, caught on. It was a triptych of three different films. And uh, it just kind of caught on, and I thought, oh, that was kind of fun. Maybe I'll make another one. And so one thing led to another. And I was actually offered uh, my first feature film from Jennifer Blanc, who is Michael Bean's wife. Um, I had interviewed her on a talk show of mine, and it was really not something that I sought out. So that's kind of been the story of my life, though. (laughs) A lot of things are just kind of handed to me, and I always say yes. I always think you should say yes to any new opportunity or challenge and see how it goes. So as someone who wasn't necessarily planning on it, when you get get offered that feature film, uh, I love this attitude of saying yes, because I think that's how you learn and, and, Mm and grow. But was it also scary? No. No? (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) I felt like I knew how to do it because I had been on so many sets from being an entertainment journalist that I really felt comfortable and at home on the set. In fact, I always loved set visits. That was my favorite part, of, especially when I worked for the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, It's just kind of like when you walk onto a set, you feel like, yeah, I'm home. I know what I'm doing here. I feel good. So what were some sets that you visited that are like stick in your mind as is really cool that you were there? Uh, let's see. Cool. That's not that. I'm not sure if I could say that. But, you know, I got to do like when I was in the thick of it, there was the the Platinum Dunes, you know, all the horror remakes oh, and sure, stuff. Yeah. So those were really fun, actually. Um, I know that they're kind of reviled here and there, but <laughs> but they were great. I mean, they treated me really nice, you know, um, and the producers were great. Um, but I also got sent to um, Pirates of the Caribbean and, you know, some of the bigger, like, sci- either sort of sci-fi adjacent genre films. Um, but I always liked the smaller independent films because you really got a feel for how the real movies are made. Well, there's a can-do spirit, I think, that happens uh-huh. on indie sets. And I think if you uh, are are looking at what is going on on an indie set and trying to apply it on your own filmmaking, mm-hmm. that's the best place to, to bear witness. Exactly. Yeah, I really learned a lot. What I like is that your film school was visiting film sets, mm-hmm. essentially. And that has to be, in in some ways, more valuable than than just book knowledge because you got to see many different filmmakers at work. Yeah, Rennie Harlan was an interesting one. Oh. <laughs> I got to. I cannot remember the name of the movie. about this. It's a, the boys' school where they were kind of warlocks or oh, something. Oh, the what covenant was that called. Yes, which is kind of like really <laughs> sort of gay, but no one right? says it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is weird because Rennie Harlan is like not a queer filmmaker and is like mm-hmm. mostly identified with these sort of machismo movies. But this is sort of like when it tips over into a little too machismo. <laughs> because I watched that movie and I remember thinking these 
boys are just shirtless and sexy. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got to see a lot of that. Uh, But yeah, so that was a really interesting set because he had this uh, like uh, a loudspeaker almost like you know the old like 1920s film directors who would say this is the voice of god (laughs) when he wanted to get people's attention which was fun and then um i was also on a couple of uva bowl sets which was crazy you know and and Um, fun i do know that uva bowl uh it was he notoriously did that boxing match against a couple critics who uh, didn't like his films Uh so i assume that that was not you you didn't you did not no 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 no, i didn't he liked me for whatever reason but yeah, it. Uh, I was on in the name of the king, and and like Ray Liotta had this major meltdown, screaming and yelling, and you know it's just kind of a wild, fun time. And and they didn't care that I was on set. They were like, oh well, journalist is here. We don't care. I wonder if that's again the changing landscape because everything on Twitter is like a, a soundbite now. Mm-hmm. I wonder now with the like kind of like fever pitch of social media if that would would happen that way again no I don't think so which I think is great you know like we talked about my memoir a little bit mentioned it so LA you know I have that story in my book and a lot of stories about journalism as well and you can really see how it's changed you know how the press junkets used to be run as opposed to how they are now it's I don't know. It just doesn't feel as intimate now as it used to. Do you think it's because the idea that there is someone always watching and listening people, there's maybe maybe even a level of fear to to it or? Um, I think it could go either way or we just don't care because everything's out there anyway. Interesting. I like that. Where maybe it's more carefree because yeah. <laughs> maybe. The, and plus it'll be forgotten. Well, you know, by tomorrow. That's true. Maybe we're just so like desensitized to outrageousness Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel outrageous that's how i feel yeah (laughs) well speaking of outrageousness of a different nature and you referenced this uh a a little bit in uh, our last little bit of conversation is sort of that intersection of horror and rock and roll which is a through Mm -hmm. line of a lot of your work and i want to discuss that but we can't really talk about it without the fact we talked about your dad but we didn't directly say yet uh-huh. that your father was in The Ventures, a very right, yeah. popular rock band. Mm-hmm. And so you grew up with rock and roll in your life. And uh, it, it has very clearly eked into aspects of your creativity. So talk to me a little bit about just growing up in, in uh, rock culture. And also, because it is so closely tied with the, the horror work you do, do you think there's a kinship between rock and roll and horror? I do. I think, you know, in certain aspects of rock and roll, certainly Alice Cooper is a prime example of that, or Marilyn Manson or Rob Zombie. You know, you can, they have a lot of film references in their songs, and there's a great theatricality to their stage shows. Um, So I think, and Kiss, of course. I mean, how can I (laughs) not mention them as well? And also, you know, interestingly enough, Gene Simmons was in the Ventures fan club as a 12-year-old boy. (laughs) Yeah. So it's really been interesting to kind of go back and learn about what artists were influenced by the Ventures. I mean, Scott Ian from Anthrax uh, loves the Ventures. But even people like John Fogarty or, you know, so it's really cool to go to find out who the Ventures influenced because they're really kind of known for surf rock, which is not really, that was a very short uh, moment in time of their career of maybe spanning five years, but they've kind of made that, that mark. Um, so what was your question? <laughs> uh, well, just growing up in a rock landscape and also the kinship between rock and roll and horror, because you have certainly proven that there is, a, there is that 
that bond. I love it. I just like to explore it creatively. Um, mm-hmm. Like you mentioned my book, Sex, Death, Rock and Roll, which is co-written uh, by with Darren Gordon-Smith from Repo, the Genetic Opera. And he and I are writing partners. And in fact, we're making a film uh, hopefully this year, which is kind of like Oliver Stone's The Doors meets Weird Science. <laughs> so it's kind <laughs> of a sci-fi rock and roll horror movie. And um, so I just loved... You know, I like. I feel like you should do what you love to do, and right. not worry about trying to be commercial. And you'll just find your your tribe as you go along. So I have to ask, since you mentioned all of these uh, prolific and and well known rock artists who are influenced by the work that your dad did, mm-hmm. uh, when you're growing up and your parents are are working and doing what they do, you know, like. Kids don't always like immediately pay attention to the work that their parents do. Uh, you know, my parents are both doctors of education, and they've done some really amazing things in their field. But like, I didn't really like grow to appreciate it later, or like understand like, oh, this is like very important to the world of education. Uh, do you recall like having a moment where you're like, oh, wait, you know, this is my dad is this person, and and it, just you know, being out in the world and realizing. I share him with all of these people in this uh-huh. way. Not until I was an adult, actually. You know, like you said, when you're a kid, they're just your parents, and they're kind of embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Uh, it, so let's talk a bit about that, though. Uh, you are now working on a documentary about the ventures. Right. And uh, documentary filmmaking, as we discussed before we went on air, is a whole different process. Then, Let's uh, just call it a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, making a narrative film. It um, really is. So talk to me a little bit. I mean, obviously, this is this is your dad's work, and so you have a personal connection. But tell me a little bit about the journey of deciding to make this documentary and, and the journey of making it. Well, actually, my brother, Tim, um, he thought that the Ventures should have like a stage musical like Jersey Boys or something like that. And he thought about that. And then he also thought, well, how come, you know, no one's ever made a documentary? Mm -hmm. So we were talking about it. I go, yeah, why not? And it's odd because the Ventures celebrate their 60th anniversary this year. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They've had, you know, dozens and dozens of gold, platinum records, everything you can imagine. And yet, there's never been a feature-length documentary about them. And I thought, well, I'm a filmmaker, and I have some connections, so why don't I just give it a go? And so, like, three years later, <laughs> here I am. It's, uh, you know, hopefully it'll be out this year. But yeah, it's a much, much more involved process, um, and it's certainly more taxing <laughs> on on everything, you know, just time-consuming and, and definitely... Uh, difficult in securing music rights and getting clips and uh, it's really a lot of it's not as not as fun as making a horror movie but I certainly do like you said feel it's it's a great honor for me to to you know show my dad's legacy to the world and be able to tell it and be the one to tell it well and who better to do that right and speaking of legacies I mean I think what's really great is your work uh both in your memoir and this documentary you're making, you've been very celebratory of of the work that your family has done. Mm -hmm. But you have also really made a stamp, as I said in the intro, and just like, if you live in the horror world, your work as a journalist has has really like had an impact and your work as a filmmaker has gotten a lot of notice. So it's it's cool that that family legacy is continuing through you doing what you love. And I want to talk to you about... um, Fetish Factory, as well as as your shorts, because uh, you have been crafting 
your own narrative in this space, uh, but also combining these elements of the rock and roll and the horror. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about Fetish Factory, because it's now available. People can watch it on Amazon, uh, among other places. And uh, it's, a, it's a feature film that uh, is, is really, I think, sort of an, an ode to Hollywood in a way. So uh, please, just talk to me a little bit about that project. Yeah, so as I mentioned, it was a a project that just sort of fell in my lap, and I was given uh, really a lot of creative freedom to do what I wanted, which is wonderful. Um, Jennifer Blanc, who is um, Jennifer Blanc Bean, Michael Bean's her husband, but she is really like one of the early pioneers of championing uh, female filmmakers and giving them a chance and a shot and she's just really been a great champion for for us um so she had said hey you know we're looking for a writer director for like an ultra ultra low budget (laughs) you know uh horror film and and the only stipulations that i had was to make it um uh, I think they had said strippers originally, or just girls who work like in in adult entertainment kind of thing, versus zombies. And I don't really like zombies that much, so I thought, oh, how am I going to do this? But then it just kind of all fell to, together wonderfully. And um, but you know, because I was able to say, okay, well, I love old Hollywood, and I love like the pinup girls of like Betty Page and Jane Mansfield. So um, I was allowed to write characters who sort of embodied these girls um Susie Wong Rosie the Riveter and then the 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 comedy elements come in to make the zombies you know a little more goofy and fun and so the movie is is I feel like it's sort of a grindhouse uh throwback like it has that 1970s fun feel of a movie that is clunky but has its heart in the right place and the movie did, as grindhouse movies tend to do, uh, for drive-in marquee purposes, have a little bit of an adventure in terms of title. Uh, when you released it, uh, there were some folks who were not quite on board with the Fetish Factory title, and they tried to change it to Cabaret of the Dead. I like both titles, yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, a Cabaret of the Dead, I think, is probably more fitting, even though I'm the one who called it Fetish Factory. But they're both, you know, they both work for me. But um, I do have heard that Google, you know, search terms when you type in fetish, <laughs> people, like, sometimes they get unexpected results. So it's probably Cabaret of the Dead is probably better, but it is Fetish Factory on Amazon Prime and, and elsewhere right now. Uh, well, Fetish Factory certainly, uh, as a title, evokes um, a little lurid uh, imagery. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think in the spirit of, of Grindhouse of yesteryear, the H.G. Lewis's and mm-hmm. the Ted V. Michaels, there's something really delicious about that. Right, yeah. And it was really a fun shoot. I mean, uh, the Blanc Bean model for all of their features is a five-day shoot. That's it. You don't get any more. <laughs> so it was pretty It was pretty great, though. I love, I love working at a fast pace, but we were shooting 17 to 20 pages a day. So I felt like it was a really great um, introduction to me in, in directing because now I feel like I can do anything. Talk about a gauntlet. I did yeah. not know you shot that in five <laughs> uh-huh. days. I've yeah. seen the film. I think it looks amazing, and I, it's a lot of fun, but I would have never guessed. Right. I mean, because we had zombie makeups. We had like the beauty makeups with the girls. We had the burlesque costuming. We had the stage acts. We had so much going on stunts. Um, And yeah, we managed to get it all done. Uh, Well, I mean, I guess it almost it seems like a dumb question to ask what were some of the challenges because shooting anything (laughs) in five. Yeah. (laughs) Anything in five days is uh, a challenge. But was there anything that stood out that was uh, a particular learning curve whilst doing this? 
Uh, well, I did have to do a couple of rewrites on my lunch breaks uh, because <laughs> we had, you know, so unexpected things happen. But that, I think that's I'm good with, you know, that kind of thing. I, I don't get flustered. But one thing that was kind of upsetting was that we had an actor, a lead actor, drop out like one day before. And fortunately, Jennifer has an amazing array of contacts from her world as an actor. So um, she brought in Daniel Quinn, who I thought was amazing as uh, as footman, <laughs> <laughs> the guy with the fetish, the foot fetish. And he's so good. I mean, I'm so glad. I'm grateful, actually, that the other actor dropped out. But that was a little bit uh, vexing, and especially since I didn't meet Daniel until I was directing him. So I would have, you know, liked to have had a little more time to get to know him. But he really brought his A game. And, you know, he was on the X-Files and all kinds of great, like, genre TV shows and films. Um, He was in that sort of existential sci-fi movie, Rubber. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I loved Rubber. Yeah, he's a great guy. Unfortunately, he passed away before the film uh, came out, so it's dedicated in his memory. But but I feel like the actors were so helpful because they all were so well-prepared and really loved their roles. And so I can't say that the challenges were lasting you know what they say right. <laughs> pain is temporary film is forever well it seems like it just uh got you ready to make another one so. exactly uh one uh thing that you just mentioned is uh how uh jennifer blank uh has very much been a champion of women in film yes and i know for a fact that is also a cause that is very near and dear to you and you're in the midst of uh launching a new project of your own uh which is one of the reasons i wanted to have you on because here with the start of february it's women in horror month and you are doing a women in horror uh website so could you talk to us about that sure it's uh womeninhorror.com and right now it's mostly a placeholder because as we've been discussing i have a lot of things going on writing books making movies uh all that stuff but i did i thought it was important and i was really surprised when i checked to see it was after sort of the the uh uh, uh jason blum debacle where he said oh i can't find any women directors <laughs> you right. know so i thought oh i'm gonna go and see like is women in horror.com available so i snagged that one and then also um female horror directors.com which i haven't done anything with yet but i think it's great just to have um those sites and right now they they point to other great sites that I admire but um yeah I'd really like to take the time to develop that and and see how I can contribute and give back to a world that's given so much to me well and with this topic in mind it begs the question uh who are some great women directors that you really admire or look up to or who are working today that you just are always excited to see output from um, well, of course, uh, Mary Heron <laughs> is one of my favorites. Um, Sally Potter is a great one. Um, Agnes Varda is one of my favorite. Uh, she's a you know new wave filmmaker, she's and I fabulous. got to meet her actually when she was down in LA for a festival. So I really look up to um, sort of the avant-garde female filmmakers. Um, and there are a lot of really good up-and-coming ones, of course. Uh, Jason Blum's uh, former assistant Chelsea Stardust and she's got a couple of features coming out this year um, I also of course love the Saska twins they're amazing um, Tristan Risk who's actually in my movie Fetish Factory is putting together a, a first feature oh, pretty great. soon I didn't know she was yeah be awesome. I know she made a great short film so um, I love to see you know my friends uh, succeeding and and looking forward to having the chance that you know they may not have had five ten years ago 
There are so many great women working in the industry today. And uh, one of the things that when I saw you were launching this site, I was so excited uh, to know that there's going to be this place and this resource to celebrate all these amazing artists. And I, when I had contacted you about doing this interview, it happened to be the day that the Oscar nominations were announced. Mm-hmm. And we had had the exchange about the fact that uh, still in 2019, uh, they are very underrepresenting female directors at the Academy Awards. But you also had a good point about Sundance. Right, yeah, Sundance. Over half of the features are directed by women, so I think that's that's a great balance. It is. And I, I mean, while I would like to see the Academy uh, step up, at least we know that the film festival world is trying to diversify. Uh, exactly. I mean, we all know and has always been the Academy uh, of the old boys club <laughs> with the emphasis on old <laughs> and boys. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's going to be a slow change for them. But uh, with so many other great festivals, the Spirit Awards and, you know, the uh, Sundance Film Festival and the SAG Awards, I mean, there were quite a few um, women directors of those television shows that won a lot of awards recently. So it's coming around. Speaking of the old boys club, uh, you know, if you exist in this town and any state of otherness, uh, there always seems to be a little bit more of a struggle. Now, as a woman working in the industry, I'm assuming you've faced challenges, whether as a journalist, as a filmmaker. And could you uh, speak to that a little bit at all? Um, Well, I'd have to say that that uh, any adversity that I have faced has come from readers of some of the horror sites that I've written for, mm-hmm. you know, where I've gotten hate mail, like, oh, you're a woman, what do you know about horror? But for the people who really count, who hired me, they, I have not gotten any any pushback at all or any, I never really had to fight for a job, thankfully. Uh, most of them have come to me. And is the toxic landscape of... of uh misogynistic readers still still I mean that's a dumb question I know what's going on but (laughs) I think it is but you know for whatever reason I'm pretty lucky I don't get harassed online I read some uh things from my other you know uh fellow female horror journalist who post on Facebook oh I got this awful letter from somebody or people are harassing them online I've never really faced that for whatever reason well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe people just don't, hey, don't fuck with Stacy. <laughs> well, I mean, you are, as far as I'm concerned, one of the leading authorities on this space. So how very dare they to question you? <laughs> so uh, you have, um, here I'm interviewing you, but you've hosted talk shows quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, including uh, This Week in Movies, Inside Horror, and uh, Dread Central Live. Um do you enjoy hosting in that capacity or do you just view it as like an extension of your work as a journalist? Um, it is an extension of my work. I did. Um, I'd really rather be you right now. <laughs> I'd much rather be asking the questions. Um, but I, I did enjoy it. And I got to meet a lot of great people and made friends through it and wonderful business connections. So I certainly don't regret it. But I'm not that person who wants to be on camera, you know, at the Academy Awards, you know, introducing a show. Right. It's just not me. I'm more behind the scenes kind of person. Well, in addition to all of this, this work, uh, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, w- you are a producer, a writer, a filmmaker. You've hosted things. You're a journalist. Uh, what haven't you done yet that you really want to do? Hmm. <laughs> to relax? <laughs> Take a day <laughs> off? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess there really isn't anything uh, yet. I mean, I, st- I still feel like I'm scratching the surface of filmmaking and, and writing, really. I mean, I would like to get more into my books. Um, I have a new book series coming out. Um 
that I'm excited about. And like you mentioned, Dark Duet, that's the the first of five books. So I got a five book publishing deal, which is great. Yeah, I love it. It's kind of like, you know, sort of the Anne Rice interview with the vampire or the True Blood or, you know, they're vampire characters, but they're rock and roll vampires in Hollywood in some of the stories. Um, So I love that. And I haven't really scratched the surface of writing novels and I'd also like to get more into nonfiction. I'm a real tr- true crime buff so I have an idea for a series of sort of a update to Hollywood Babylon where I can write like a series of true crime books and uh, you know one of the wonderful things with being able to take matters into your own hands and cut out the middleman and self-publishing I've learned a lot about how to do that and navigate those waters so that's something that I look forward to getting more into in the future. Now in, with regards to self-publishing do you just find in the landscape of, of the current era of digital where there's just so much content everywhere that's the best way to go about? I don't know. I mean, like the the dark duet uh, that's the Immortal Confessions series, that is through a a traditional publisher. Right. And um, I haven't done that in quite a long time. So I wanted to explore that and see if it could be better. Uh, Since the book isn't out yet, I don't know. But they do have a much further reach than I would in terms of getting into the few uh, bricks and mortars bookstores that still exist and a lot of uh, more reach than I have. But I do also... uh, I love to be in control of everything. So it's, I guess, you know, a trade-off. Now, I have to ask, because if you're going to write a true crime novel, in a way, true crime, in my mind, is sort of akin to making a documentary in the book space. <laughs> so uh, yeah. that, there's a lot of, of research involved. Mm-hmm. But is do you consider it a little different because you can, you're can you sort of in control of everything? Exactly. It's just when you're a writer, it's just you and your research. Whereas with the documentary, you're dealing with a lot of different moving parts and different people um, in our ventures documentary. We have over 30 interviewees and a lot of clips to clear and music to get. So that's that's different. I feel like books are, are much more, um, I don't want to say easy because they're not easy to write, but they certainly do. You feel a, a greater sense of personal satisfaction. And I know that you referenced that you want to do uh, sort of a true crime Hollywood Babylon. Mm-hmm. But because I'm, I'm curious, are there particular true crime cases or things that stand out to you that are of great interest or even books that already exist that you recommend to listeners? Um, well, of course, the Black Dahlia case, I would say, is the ultimate uh, Hollywood murder mystery. Um, but no, I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of the Mansons, of course, which is sort of coming again full circle because of the uh, Quentin Tarantino movie, which is not really about the Manson murders. But, but you know, going back to my heritage, you know, my mom knew Jay Sebring, who was one of the murder victims. And so in her book, her memoir, Legends and Lipstick, she has like a whole chapter about knowing Jay Sebring and dating him. And, and then she also got to interview Tex Watson, who was the guy who actually killed him. So I feel like sort of a, a connection to sort of the Hollywood dark side, which would be the name of my book series. But what I want to do is to concentrate on um, to have seven different volumes and, and cover different decades, starting, say, with the 30s and just have like all the uh, darker Hollywood mysteries, murders, suicides, burnouts of that era. And I'd like to try to cover ones that are less known. So that is going to take some research. Do you think there's something about Hollywood that lends itself to these dark stories? Oh, I think it's just because uh, it's like a magnet to 
everyone with a dream. <laughs> so, and some of those people's dreams are darker than others. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, so, with that in mind, um, the you you said you've got five book uh, series coming, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite a bit of work. I, I realize. Um, and uh, you had mentioned you're working on another movie as mm-hmm. well, uh, as well as completing the documentary. Um, but what else is ahead for you? Uh, I know that you're always scheming things. I know. Yeah. No, I think that's enough on my plate for now, at least for 2019. <laughs> and then we'll see what happens in the, the next roaring 20s. I don't know. But, uh, you know, like, uh, like you said, it's, it's always something new. I, I think that's one of my sort of mantras in life is always have something to look forward to. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, because you had mentioned it before we started recording, uh, is that uh, you have a fondness for Paul Etheridge's Hellbent. And as you know, the show here is all about the intersection of queerness and horror. And uh, Paul was recently on the show, but I am always thrilled to talk about uh, this particular movie. Um, Tell me just a little bit about uh, your affinity for it, but also I just kind of want to talk about slasher movies as social commentary because I think there's a lot that doesn't get unpacked about that topic because slasher movies are often viewed as fluff to the general public. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, Hellbent, I saw it when it first came out, mm-hmm. so to speak. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think I was writing for horror.com back then. And um, I just loved the... The spirit of it, and of course, being a, a native Angelino, of course, the West Hollywood, you know, ha- uh, Halloween parade and everything that it had all those elements. Plus, it had the elements of all the slasher films, all the tropes, all the you know, don't go in the basement, don't do this, don't no. don't say I'll be right back, all those things. So you could tell that the the director Paul absolutely loved the genre. But he was also trying to tell his story from a personal point of view, which I loved. And then I, I got to meet him, and I was just even more um, impressed. He's such an intelligent, uh, genuine, kind person, and I am so pleased for all of his successes. Um, another friend of mine now th- that I've met through journalism is Don Mancini, and he makes the best, you know mainstream yet queer horror films and the TV show Hannibal that he wrote for. for right. A while. And as of today's recording, it was just announced that Don is doing the uh, Chucky TV series I for sci-fi. That. Did, did yes. you hear that yet? Or? I did. Yeah. It's so exciting. Um, you know, it's true. A, a lot of times when you talk to sort of uh, the lay person outside of the genre, they don't really give a lot of credit in general, we know we know those people like, oh, I don't watch horror movies. Mm-hmm. But slasher movies frequently get dismissed as like, as Roger Ebert used to call them, the dead teenager movies. <laughs> uh, Which is not wrong. It's not wrong. But I also think that there is a lot of uh, underlying social commentary that exists in a lot of slasher films. I've been talking a lot recently about how uh, Laurie in the original Halloween, in a way, is very representative of otherness because she so badly wants to be like the other girls. And that's where her kind of feelings of exclusion mm-hmm. come. And it's the idea that when you're watching it, if you especially feel different or outsider, she's very relatable. Yes. Uh, or even in the Friday the 13th movies, this uh, this notion that um, it's always these terrible popular kids that are that really make up the most of Jason's like body count, the fodder of it all. <laughs> all right. uh, and uh, it's always the the tomboy or the kid who's on the outside 
Uh, and what I like about Hellbent is it took those notions that we inherently kind of saw and brought it to the forefront mm-hmm. because it's like, well, everyone in this movie is an outsider uh, and they were just trying to live their lives. Um, I don't know. I just I, I don't mean to go off on a dissertation about slasher films, but I think that. Uh, oh, I mean, I grew up in the in the 80s. So, of course, I saw them all in real time before they were all remade. So um but yeah, I, I am more into supernatural horror. I mean, that's mm-hmm. more my my jam, I guess. I love, um, you know, Carrie, of course, is a great one. Dee Palma is one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, so I love that. And, and um, The Shining, of course, is another great one. So those kind of movies, which are more, I feel like, cinematic and artsy. Um, you know, Polanski's The Tenant is another favorite of mine. Right. Um, so I can't say that slashers are my favorite, but since I have grown up, you know, in the horror genre in the 80s, plus made a living covering horror movies of all kinds, I certainly love slashers. But um, right. I, yeah, I, I can't say that it's my favorite genre. Oh, of course. I like that you referenced Brian De Palma uh, as, as one of your favorites, because really, when you think of filmmakers who utilize identity and sexuality mm-hmm. In, in the horror to serve as commentary, few do it quite as well as he does. Uh, I mean, Carrie alone is all about outsider status, mm-hmm. but then just out in the, you know, out into his larger oeuvre. Yeah, and I mean, I just love the the artistry of his films. Uh, Sisters, of course, is another beautiful one. And I always, if at all possible, I will always put a split screen in my films. <laughs> you know, I gotta love it. Uh, so, Stacy, what have you seen recently that excites you, uh, and what has uh, inspired you recently at, at the movies? Well, I just saw um, Piercing from the uh, a director of Eyes of My Mother. Oh, I haven't even heard of this one yet. Yeah, it's coming out Friday. Um, so, and it, it's really an interesting. It's based on a novel by the uh, same writer that did Audition. Mm-hmm. So it's very. Uh, erotic kind of tango cat and mouse uh, psychological horror film that was one that I liked it had a lot of uh, artistry to it which I always appreciate um, oh I you know I am definitely looking forward to seeing uh, the house that Jack built um, although I've heard it's quite divisive like any Lars von Trier movie but um, he's one of my favorite filmmakers as well so I will definitely be seeing that I like the kind of edgy super super dark horror films is there anything that you have seen that was too edgy for you uh do you do you have a threshold or is this just because you live in the genre so much you're like um... oh i do definitely i did not like the human centipede films and i understand that tom six has made another movie that's coming out soon um that's not the kind of thing i don't like gross you know gratuitous disgusting bodily function type movies um so those kind of things i don't really like um sallow is certainly not one of my favorite movies that would be my my cutoff point i guess but i do love you know really super dark uh psychological horror films yeah i seem just knowing what i know about your tastes and uh as well as seeing your work you seem to err more on the side of the atmospheric Mm mm-hmm uh, you're a big Hammer horror fan, right? I am. Yeah. Uh, I am a long, I'm a long-standing fan of Hammer. They're one of my favorites, uh, and I think that Hammer is one of the earlier studios that injected uh, a lot of sexuality and queerness into their their films. With this like is true. Vampire lovers, mm-hmm. uh, lust of the vampire. Uh, do you, what are do you, what are your favorite Hammers? 
Um, well, I mean, pretty much anything with Christopher Lee. <laughs> I loved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was great. He really was the quintessential Dracula. But, you know, I just, I love all, like you were saying, the atmosphere of it, the beautiful women with their negligees and just like the... <laughs> This misty, foggy graveyards. I love all that stuff. So I can't really pick a favorite one. Well, that and that kind of like brings it around to your your appreciation of the pinups of Hollywood mm-hmm. too, because I feel like the Hammer Horror ladies were sort of the pinups of Gothic. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, they were the forerunners to Elvira, and they were contemporary with Vampira and those, you know, sort of the the uh, sexy, you know, low cut gowns and stuff but but yet very much in command and control and certainly not objectified by any means well stacy uh where can people find you well that's a good question well of course women in horror.com right. <laughs> that's a pretty easy one to remember and then my website stacy and it has all the links to my social media but i've really been on uh, instagram more than anything lately so that's instagram uh, stacy lane wilson and dark duets coming out soon Yes. Uh, is there a projected date uh, that people should be looking for that? Um, I think it should be out in about six to eight weeks. So I just got the cover art and I'm so excited and I can't show it to anybody <laughs> yet. So, yeah, it should be out in like a couple months, I would say. But it does, from what you've said, it seems like it's it's very definitive Stacey Lane Wilson. It's a little, little horror, a little rock and roll and yeah. a, a lot of fun. Yeah, so. thanks can't wait uh stacy thank you so much for coming to dead for filth today oh, uh, thanks for having me on and please out in the world uh stacy's an amazing author check out her books keep your eyes out for her works that are coming watch her movies that are already out there uh her byline appears in so many places she really is one of the institutions uh of, of our modern horror genre and i value her so much so thank you for coming oh thanks i'm michael Verratti. this has been dead for filth yours always in glam and gore good night and good luck Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelletione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.